Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. It's the Wonky Show. The skills bill has been in the Lords. Uh, we'll have a listen. We're finding out more about last year's examiny shambles. UCAS has some new figures on mental health and the delayed roadmap. What does that mean for HE? all coming up thanks very much andrew well actually what we're we're saying uh, today is i think that uh, t- 23 and 24 year olds uh, will be able to uh, to come forward and get their uh, their vaccine uh, doses as of uh, as of today uh, or tomorrow um so we're, we're going as fast as we Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Jim Dickinson, and here to help us understand what's going on this week, as usual, a couple of fantastic guests. Uh, in Oxfordshire, Mary Kernock-Cook is a serial non-exec director and chair of the UPP Foundation Student Futures Commission. Mary, your highlight of the week, please. Oh, well, I had an actual IRL lunch on Sunday, I hope that counts as this week, um, with three current and recent students. And do you know what? It was a real highlight because I've just missed the buzz of talking to young people while I've been cocooned at home by myself for the last 15 months. Um, but also because these three were, well, one was about to graduate, graduate in PPE. One had just graduated in electrical engineering and one graduated last year in, I think, linguistics and Spanish. And um that they were sort of breezily scathing about their own university experience, which worried me. But I was talking to them because <clears throat> they're hot on an idea for an edtech startup. Um, and it's a startup designed particularly to support young people who want to take, um, you know, the road less traveled and want to be entrepreneurs, professional gig workers, portfolio workers, you know, from the start. And apparently there's lots of these people and a lot more since the pandemic. Um, I call them the, the no-collar workers. Um, and you heard it here first, the idea that individuals are the business. It was it was so great. It was such a great conversation. Wow, fascinating stuff. We'll keep an eye on that. Uh, and in great Dunmo, Mark Essex is Director of Skills at KPMG. Mark, your highlight of the week, please. So two, I mean, I, I uh, my personal highlight is I've done my first ever chin-up this week, which for someone who weighed 26 stone 18 months ago, the view from the top was lovely. Um, but my professional highlight, it's a, it's, a, it's a bit like... It's a bit like the, the last one. I, I've started planning physical events. I've got whiteboards in front of me with how I'm going to chair an actual panel where I'm going to be sitting near, but not too near, um, uh, real guests in front of a real audience. And that's enormously energising and I miss it. Wow, how exciting. Fantastic stuff. So, yes, we start this week with skills. The government's skills and post-16 education bill received its second reading in the Lords this week. And there was a spirited debate on the red benches. Mark, tell us more. Yeah, it faced some scrutiny, didn't it? Um, and from some illustrious uh, experts, former Conservative Universities Minister uh, Lord Willits talked about the artificial conflict that he fears between 
higher education and further education. And and then another former university minister, Lord Johnson, um, expressed his fears that um, some of this might get watered down eventually by the by the Treasury. I think the really interesting uh, take on this was was about about the future. Labour's Baroness Wilcox said the bill was inadequate and and urged the government for a, to produce a ten year strategy for further education. I think that's asking a lot right now when it's pretty difficult to forecast <laughs> next week. Um, yeah, yeah, it's very difficult to get a one week strategy out of the government at this well, point. Well, out, out of anybody, my um, yeah, I've got clients so, who ask me. My part, my job is to help them figure it out. You know, what skills should I invest in for the future? Um, yeah, it's fascinating stuff. So let's, um, Mary, before I come to you, let's have a let's have a listen to some of the contributions uh, from the chamber. My lords, the evidence is clear. We have a problem in the balance of education. Only 4% of young people achieve a qualification at higher technical level by the age of 25, compared to a third who get a degree or above. And yet 34% of working age graduates are not in high-skilled employment. No wonder more parents would now prefer their child to gain a vocational qualification than a degree. University is a great option for some, but it isn't the best option for everyone. And it shouldn't be seen as the only pathway to success. And whilst, of course, I welcome the principles... The really important matter is what they mean in practice. And here I have to say, I am concerned about a deep confusion or an artificial conflict, perhaps, between vocational and academic. And the minister herself, in her opening speech, referred to parents preferring their child to have a vocational qualification to a degree. And I'm familiar with the research published by the Social Market Foundation on which that statement rests. I find it very hard to make sense of the question that was put to people in that opinion survey. I talk to universities who tell me that 70% of their students are studying on a course accredited by an employer or an employer organization. They are doing courses which are a license to practice. The white paper rightly refers to the need for nurses and engineers. These are courses which are also delivered by universities. Are they academic or are they vocational? It is a false distinction. And if it is used to try to create conflict between higher education and further education, when they both have an important role to play, you can do academic courses in further education colleges and you can do vocational courses in universities. If they are instead used to create conflict between these two, both very important parts of our education system, then the cause which the minister rightly supports will be put back rather than advancing. My current role as Pro-Vice-Chancellor for Engagement at Lancaster University affords me the great pleasure of working closely with our further education colleges, universities and civic partners to embed the value of education in our local and regional communities. Operating as we do in an area of multiple deprivation, the partners are acutely aware that lifelong acquisition of skills is critical to the development and future workforce placement of our young people. My Lords, I'm supportive of this bill in raising and promoting the quality and place-based relevance of post-16 skills provision, although I inwardly flinch at the partitioning of education into traditional age and sector-based silos. 
In my experience, education can be an effective route out of poverty, but it requires all parts of the ecosystem to work in progressive collaboration. We sometimes forget that our life habits and ambitions may be hardwired long before we even enter into secondary school. Yet the discussions about workplace and skill set still come towards the end of that educational pipeline. Perhaps this is too late to have any realistic hope of breaking the educational poverty cycle that has become a generational and a geographical norm for many. Um, the other area of concern that I have is around the Treasury's, what I see is the Treasury's persistent sort of flawed conception of how to measure value for money in post-16 education. Um, the idea that you can measure the worth of a course by the proportion of the student loan that ends up being repaid. I think this is really far too reductive. And it will prevent us, if we, if we stick with it, from funding properly what are socially useful and valuable, but lower earning uh, professions and, and, and paths in life. We already see hints that this uh, is, is the prevailing view and will, and will continue to be the prevailing view in the list of 400 or so qualifications that are eligible for funding in the Lifetime Skills Guarantee. That list of 400 qualifications is, is too, too restrictive still. It doesn't include, as far as I can see, any uh, creative arts courses, for example. And my concern as this bill makes its way through this place and, and the other place is that when the section lands on the new student finance system, that the Treasury uses this legislation's fine print to further defund those areas of provision that have lower rates of repayment associated with them through a mix of potential policy tools, including student number controls by subject, higher minimum entry requirements by subject, um, and a variety of other tools, most notably, of course, being uh, the potential for much lower fee levels for those courses. So those are all big risks um, as this bill makes its way through this place. And I'd appreciate any reassurance that the minister can give on that front. I welcome a bill which focuses on lifelong learning and is committed to enhancing skills amongst the many young and indeed older people who do not go to university. I also welcome a bill which aims to enhance the further education sector and to support outstanding teaching, as well as emphasising collaboration between employers and education and training providers, with the provisos made by my noble friend Baroness uh, Morris of Yardley on this. Lastly, I welcome a bill which seeks to correct the injustice of considerable financial support for students in universities against negligible financial support for students studying in FE colleges. We undoubtedly have serious skills gaps compared with other OECD countries, with shortages of skilled employees in many sectors and lower levels of productivity. They reflect too little investment by government and employers in, in, in alternative qualifications to university degrees. This has been particularly apparent in the last decade when the coalition government and the conservative government which followed it slashed further education, cutting the college's incomes by 50%. <laughs> Having welcomed the aims of the bill, I now turn to some of its limitations. As a piece of legislation, it is short in detail, on detail. Uh, it's a skeleton with too little flesh on it to allow us to understand how it will work in practice in key areas. This perhaps explains the long time scale for implementation, which will not be until 2024, 2025 uh, for core proposals. The bill reads a bit like work in progress rather than the end of a detailed policy-making approach, culminating uh, rather than beginning with a piece of legislation. 
In a post-COVID world, action will be needed urgently and cannot be delayed for four years. This is especially true of training and educational support for the unemployed after furlough ends. The bill's implementation is also dependent, as others have said, on a large injection of resources, both in the short term and the longer term. The Institute of Fiscal Studies has questioned whether these resources will be forthcoming and whether the detailed calculations of the costs entailed have been undertaken. So I asked the Minister, what is the total price of this bill when implemented and when will the government start injecting new resources? And although they're important to this plan, so are others. Learners are at the centre of what we want to do. Providers are at the centre of what we want to do. A locality and its needs are at the centre of what we want to do. The local economy in that area is also at the centre. And whoever can guess what the skills of the future will be, they need to be at the centre of these LSIPs as well. So it's a more complicated bill than just putting employers and businesses in the driving seat. And I'm not sure at the moment, if I may say to the Minister, that the bill really recognises that complexity and gives some indication on which route it will wish to take. And that's what the committee stage and the report stage will be about. And I hope that we will have the opportunity to flesh that out then. I cannot have been the only person dumbfounded that the word creativity, having featured in the Secretary of State's introduction, failed to reappear in either the bill or the Skills for Jobs white paper that preceded it. When she responds, could the minister please explain this omission or possibly tell me that I need my glasses tested? My laws, creativity is an entirely sustainable asset, one the UK has proved to have in abundance. In my judgment, it'll prove the great differentiator among ambitious competitive nations in the digital world. Surely it needs to be incorporated into every aspect of the way we think about skills and training for the future. For example, far too little thought has been given to how we cultivate greater agility in the workforce by encouraging transferable skills across sectors. The White Paper described the need to develop higher level technical skills in science, technology and engineering. Of course, STEM and digital skills should be at the forefront of how we plan for the future, but they have to walk hand in hand with creativity if we're serious about developing a truly successful economy. So, Mary, what did you make of the debate? Um, well, I think it was Baroness Blackstone who said that this bill was a skeleton without much flesh on it. Um, and and really, I, I sort of had this feeling that, you know, we're having this debate when universities, the questions that universities really want answers to are about fees and funding. You know, are there going to be minimum entry requirements? Are there going to be number controls? Are there going to be subject or course related uh, restrictions on enrolment and when universities I think should be and would like to be getting really stuck into planning with their local communities with colleges and employers and students about what this whole new world will look like so that so there was a bit of sort of unreality about the debate that was happening because it seems to be happening in a vacuum of really knowing what the kind of coordinates of um, of planning tertiary education are going to look like. Yeah, and Mark, I mean, you know, you know, you know watching the contributions, and maybe this is what, you know, second readings of this sort of bill in the Lords are always like, but, you know, I got a sense that unless we've, we, we start to get some clarity on the way the lifelong learning entitlement will work, and much more importantly, perhaps, unless and until we get some clarity from the Treasury on the amount of money going into kind of, you know, behind the proposals, the, the danger is that this piece of legislation is just kind of sat there but actually the debate around it will really be about these things that we can't yet touch taste and see that we really want to talk about 
I think I think that's right. But I have, I mean, it's it's not very fashionable, but I have a bit of sympathy um, with those trying to push the bill for the same reason I I just said. It's about you know, of course, we'd all like certainty. That's a cliche, isn't it? Business would love it. Um, Lord Treesman uh, said some some businesses aren't very good at reading the runes and what skills are required. Yeah, I can't blame them. It's very hard. We are changing the way we live, work, consume. We don't know how often we're going to commute. How on earth do we know how many train drivers we need? We don't know how many people are going to permanently shift to online shopping. How on earth do we know how much retail square footage we need? We can probably have a pretty good guess that we don't have enough healthcare workers. Um, uh, so there are some things which we do know. But, you know, this, this, this point about funding... You know, we're asking youngsters, actually young people, people starting out their learning, their lifelong learning, uh, to make a significant financial contribution um, and basically make a bet about whether they're going to go and learn something that will be valuable in 10, 20 years or 30 years, however long it's going to take them to repay that commitment. That's a lot to ask. And and it's a lot to ask anyway. It's a lot to ask the Mr. and Mrs. Taxpayer as, as well. It strikes me that the debate at the moment is about how we reduce the commitment, i.e. somebody else takes the risk. And actually, maybe the debate should be about how do we reduce the risk in the first place? Maybe maybe we shouldn't be trying to equip people for a lifetime of work by investing all of their learning at the front and think about other ways to de-risk it, like maybe literally do it over a lifetime, bit at a time. Let's see how things pan out. But Mary, isn't that interesting? Because on the one hand, you know, I can, I could, I could probably type out now a list of advocates of, you know, higher education and university degrees that would say what a university degree in some ways does is prepare you for all sorts of jobs that haven't been invented yet. But there, you know, there's a, there's, there's an equally valid argument that says, you know, as Mark says, we, we front load everything. People go in and do three or four years at 18. Wouldn't they be better off kind of mixing and matching with their lifelong learning entitlement throughout the course of their lives? Because everything's about to change. Where, where do you, how do we steer through that both as a society and as a sector? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, th- I think both, um, you know, not either or, but both because, um, Undoubtedly, you know, whatever you study when you're a school leaver, you know, much of what happens over those two or three or four years that you spend at university um, is about a kind of maturing young adult. And, and quite apart from anything else, learning some some good skills about kind of living independently, making new friends, um, uh, going into a wider social circle than you've, you know, you've been cocooned in your in your community and your primary and secondary school community sort of pretty much all your lives up till then. So I don't think that loses value. Um, But, you know, there is a view about, you know, all learning is simply to prepare you for your next step of of learning. And so, you know, making sure that it, it is giving people skills that they can transfer and build on later in life, I think, um, yeah, well, who who knows? But I think um, I think Mark's point about you know de-risking the choices you make is is a really valid one. Incidentally, I also noticed um, in Joe Johnson's uh, speech at the, in the debate, I thought it was really interesting, sort of intriguing, really that he I think he was calling for a sort of joining up of government agencies, wasn't he? So you know because there's all these different agencies. There's obviously the Office for Students, the ESFA. Um, it, it, different regulators, the Institute for Apprenticeships and the QAA and so on. And I think he was calling up, calling for a sort of joining up of agencies across the tertiary sector so that, um, 
the regulatory and funding kind of stuff is unified as as uh, for for providers as well as for students. Uh, I thought that was quite interesting, given that yeah. his his bill set up the office for students only it, what it, seems it, like quite a short time ago. Anyway, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. My name's Nick Pilcher. I'm a lecturer in the Business School at Edinburgh Napier University. And along with Kendall Richards, who's a lecturer in the School of Computing at Napier, we've just um, had a piece put on Wonky about an article we wrote about study skills. And the basic thrust of the piece is that there is no such thing as study skills. They don't exist and that generic skills and teaching them is, is completely completely useless basically um, we make the argument for this on the basis of a number of things but one of these is that, that that it's a myth that study skills is transferable and in fact each individual subject has its own particular aspects and knowledge that students need um, this kind of works this mirrors the HE policy landscape in the sense that study skills are increasingly delivered from a centralised service and are delivered generically and what we're basically saying is that um, we think they should in fact actually be decentralised into the schools and that what students need really is help in the subject and we say a little bit more about why we think this in an article in Teaching in Higher Education published last year and there's a link there to that article in the Wonky piece Um, thanks very much and hope you find the piece interesting and useful Now, meanwhile this week, the Centre for Progressive Policy has published an essay from former Ofqual chair Roger Taylor, reflecting on the decisions made around last year's examiny shambles. What did he have to say, Mary? Oh, well, as you can imagine, as a former qualifications wonk, I I kind of devoured this essay with some some relish. But I have to say, at first, I was rather puzzled by the headlines it generated, which, of course, as you said, concentrated um, on who was to blame for the crisis last summer. And I finally found all that stuff in the appendix to the essay, um, which, uh, and, and, and to be fair, the appendix did attempt to an- answer some basic questions about decision making a- around the algorithm and its eventual demise and, and replacement by assessed grades. But actually coming to the essay itself, which, by the way, I thoroughly recommend reading because I think it's quite thoughtful and very thought provoking. Um, you know, don't bother if you're on a witch hunt for sticks to beat the culprit with. Do bother if you're properly interested in the debates about assessment that that I think the pandemic and two summers of cancelled exams has 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 thrown up. Um, so Roger Taylor, as you say, the former chair of um, the English exams regulator Ofqual, he he ranges over a whole a whole span of stuff, digital applications, qualifications, uh, selection, uh, including for, for recruitment, the role of algorithms, um, and, and talks about the strengths and weaknesses of the, of the current exam system. And he, he, what he's doing is he's using last year's troubles as the kind of context for um, his thought. But, but reading it really reminds me that I think we do have uh, an existential problem around qualifications and public exams. Um, you know, we saw last year, didn't we, that students and and the public at large suddenly kind of fell in love with real exams when they were faced with something that they perceived as as very much less fair. Um, and the old algorithm got booted pretty sharpish to be replaced with teacher-assessed grades. But of course, anyone, or at least anyone with a Twitter feed, will know that you know that there are loads of people out there who are absolutely furious about the inequity of the teacher-assessed grades, because some schools 
stuck to the guidelines and moderated their own grades, you know, really forensically, while others thought, oh, whoopee, we can, you know, we can do really well this year. And I think a lot of last year's candidates still feel pretty cheated by all of this. So this year, once again, we've got teachers supplying the the grades, which will go through some kind of more or less superficial quality check by Ofqual and and or the, the awarding bodies before they get printed out on pupils' certificates. And uh, and I think what a lot of people are worrying about is a sort of tsunami of appeals and a university admissions um, system, which is going to, um, uh, you know, be really worried now about how this is all going to, to play out. I, I think you have to strap in because it's going to be quite a bumpy ride. Um, but of more interest, I think, is that the, the essay asks some, some big questions um, and it can't have gone unnoticed that several organisations are starting to ask the same thing. We've got the Times Education Commission, um, Pearson's doing a big review and a group that I'm involved called Rethinking Assessment, you know, all taking quite fundamental looks at what education is about. You know, what students are taught and what they learn is inextricably linked to how they're assessed. And, and of course, the last two years has amplified that. And I think more people now are starting to question the education system really quite quite fundamentally and the big big question is whether there's any appetite for fundamental reform in government um and i don't think there is at least not not at the moment <laughs> mark what did you make of the uh, the intervention Taylor? i think i mean that the whole the whole question i mean no, there's no winners here i mean i have enormous sympathy for uh for someone trying to steer away through this impossible problem of people not being able to take exams i'm a school governor as well so i see it from from that side too and actually in a year in which the school i'm a governor of was expecting a boost to their results you've now got people saying you know did you have a good year because we changed the way you you graded people or because your students earned those results and and i know what went into them and we were expecting a better year so in some ways it's a it's a shame the the challenge here is we expect these exams that students sit to to fulfill so many different purposes And, and what's invested in them it, you know, it's not the exam. Let's find another way to decide if it's A or B. I mean, there's decades of investment in em- employers understanding what those things mean. Uh, obviously, universities and, and other d- destinations understanding, uh, using them to differentiate between between students and so on. Um, and you can't just if the number of unintended consequences of very quickly changing that are, are obviously very difficult. So I've got lots of sympathy, and I think, um, you know, I. I think it's probably not a terrible, of all the possible ways they could have got through it, it's not a terrible outcome. The question about fairness versus accuracy, though, um, I buy the analysis that says it's uh, it's um, it's 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 not a decision anybody really wants to have to wrestle with explicitly people probably would prefer to quietly fudge it mary let's assume that um you know both for circumstantial reasons but also for you know the kind of current ministerial post holder reasons that we are not about to go into a period where a, a highly complex and controversial piece of policy work is done around uh, exams what you know just let's pivot a minute what if you had to predict what is going to happen uh in this cycle around kind of clearing and so on so you know what 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 is about to hit the sector do you think um yeah well that's a that's another great question thanks thanks for that one Jim. um <laughs> but i mean for a start it, it it's fairly clear isn't it from a from a university admissions point of view 
you know, why would why would any school or any teacher um, do anything much different from um, giving their students the assessed grades the same as the predicted grades in their UCAS application form? And I'm kind of assuming that most admissions professionals have have also made made that assumption. And and as far as I can tell. confirmation bias this is yeah (laughs) well you know i think universities have have been cautious in their offer making so one way or another the likelihood is that clearing will be bigger i think the bit i'm most worried about is i I can't quite remember how the timetable works but i think we get the results earlier and confirmation you know there's a bigger gap between results and and confirmations to leave time for for the appeals and that's my real worry is that you know what's anybody got to lose from appealing i mean that i guess you know, a very small proportion would get awarded a lower grade than their original grade. But, um, you know, it's it's probably worth having a punt for, for quite a lot of people. And that, that's my real worry is that it'll just be an elongated, chaotic system. And the longer it takes for universities to be able to confirm places, the longer clearing gets stretched out. And it just means more students left in limbo and uncertain it leaves less time for sorting out loans student loans and accommodation and and just the kind of mental preparation of knowing where you're going to be starting in the autumn and and getting ready for that so um i I don't relish this season but um as ever i'm sure admissions professionals will step up to the plate and do everything they can to although mary who knows by then we might be clamoring for three or four extra weeks to get the second jabs into everyone's arms so well yeah (laughs) who knows knows? uh anyway a bit more of that later now uh every week on the show we delve deep into the sector's past to discover stories of how things were and how things came to be with nottingham trent's academic registrar mike ratcliffe here's the hidden history of he So one of the questions that arises from educating women is should they have a special curriculum for women? Should they be doing the same as men? What's going to be happening? Though you have to put this in context. It's very important not to take historical things out of context and and laugh at people in the past. Never want to do that. Um, But in the context of what women's careers were like, well, what would a a useful degree for women uh, look like? So the King's College Department of Women um, has decided that it's going to explore what that might look like. And it gets some benefactions from outside to set up a course to think about a useful course for, for women to do. And they settled on household and social science as the model that they should they should take forward. So they start to develop a course in this. Now, this quite quickly becomes uh, quite an important part of the college, and they transfer back to King's um, the the English and history and other kinds of subjects and leaving the college to really concentrate on household and social science. Now, in its high day, you can get a proper BSc degree uh, from the University of London in household and social science, in which you learn organic and physical chemistry, general biology, applied chemistry, bacteriology, household work, special household work, institutional management. And the tests that come with this are just wonderful. So what you get is you get this lovely publication of exam papers. So uh, you you get a sense of what people should be doing. So the exam paper uh, from 1921 uh, talks about uh, what what should you do for economic biology? Uh, and the question is, give an account of the habits and life history of the itch mite. Um, write an essay on insects and disease. Uh, so you get this kind of breadth of, of thing. But but what makes it clear what's going on here is the practical exam that you get to sit. So one of the things you get to do is you have a day exam. Uh, you get to uh, take the exam from uh, in the morning. You get uh, uh, 10 to 1 for, for part 1, 
Plan meals for a day in a middle-class family for each of the seasons. Give the quantities required and compare the energy values. What principles would guide you in the choice of food? And there's a practical exam, so that's just theoretical still, so the practical exam, 10 till 4. Prepare a day's meal for a family consisting of father, mother and two children, using as little fuel as possible. Hand in a list of fresh ingredients required by 11am and calculate the price of each meal. Second part, all utensils used are to be cleaned and left for inspection. It includes the washing up. It's a wonderful idea. Now, obviously, as this is, you know, this this is not without opposition. Uh, Some years before, um, there's this wonderful uh, suffragette um, publication called The Free Woman, uh, run by a woman called Dora Marsden. And and she's got a friend who's at this college um, uh, teaching uh, on this thing. And and she's quite forthright about this course, uh, as you might imagine. She says, the aims of those who frame such a retrograde scheme are in radical opposition to those of women who are deserving the freedom and development of women. Uh, They aim at perpetuating women's inferiority by perfecting her in the role which puts her in the greatest difficulties of her development. I protest that a more impudent piece of charlatanry has never been perpetuated before in the history of education. Dora Marston goes at it. Now, eventually, obviously, it wanes and it, it moves off. And, it, and what comes Queen Elizabeth College goes into more normal branches of science. Uh, but for a moment, there is this wonderful BSc degree in household and social science. There's a couple of exciting wonky at home events coming up and you're invited Transitions at the top in universities are a predictable part of institutional life and usually a sign of a healthy system. Senior managers get promoted, heads of universities retire, take up new leadership positions in different institutions or countries, or move on to other types of work inside and outside higher education. Less frequently, though, and often more publicly, university leaders have to step down either temporarily or permanently for permanent reasons or professional failings. So what's really going on? On June the 24th, Tom Kenny and Robin Middlehurst, the authors of a new book on higher education leadership transitions, will join a panel of guests to discuss transition at the top and the turbulence of those transitions for institutions and their communities. And then on the 30th of June, one year on from the death of George Floyd and the eruption of the Black Lives Matter movement into a global call for meaningful change on race equity, it's time for HE to take stock. UK universities have made significant commitments to race equity in the past year, but black students and staff rightly expect sustained progress and momentum to achieve real change for the long term. At this Wonky at Home event, hosted by Amate Doku, we'll explore the critical path for making progress happen on the ground with case studies of two universities who are working to drive change forward on race equity. Both events are free, and as I say, you're very welcome, and you can find out more and grab your place at wonky.com forward slash events. See you there. And finally, now, both in England and Scotland, we seem to have taken a detour on the roadmap to freedom. Mary, what does all of this mean for HE? Well, this is the story where the forgotten 50% is actually the opposite to the usual government rhetoric about people who don't go to university. Now it's the people who do go to university who are the forgotten 50% at least, uh, I think, as far as this pandemic has been concerned. Um, So in short, the question is, what does the delay in the roadmap to freedom mean for students expected to start or return to uni in September? Um, and, And of course, we're talking about a majority of students who are in younger age groups who might not by then have been double vaxxed. Um, Will the government therefore want to impose restrictions on their migration back to campuses in the autumn? 
Or will they insist on restrictions on face-to-face teaching, socialisation, etc., um, because they clearly want to keep a lid on any unwelcome surge in COVID cases? Um, and uh, I thought it was noticeable, actually, that the, the Prime Minister in the, in the press conference, he hadn't prepared anything specifically to say about this situation. And, and guess what? The sector is left to work it out for itself, what, it, what it's all mean. But I, I think we've all got quite used to that. But, and, but, and, and just to say, I mean, the, the, I don't think it does it justice when I sort of typed it out for one corner. So at this point, I'm just going to quickly edit in. Uh, act, you know what Boris actually said at the presser off the back of what presumably they must have known was a recorded question. Anyway, have a listen. Thanks very much, Andrew. Well, actually, what we're we're saying today is I think that uh, twenty three and twenty four year olds uh, will be able to uh, to come forward and get their uh, their vaccine uh, doses as of uh, as of today uh, or tomorrow. Um, so we're we're going as fast as we as we can, and um, by uh, July the nineteenth. Uh, two thirds of, of of adults aged, uh, uh, all adults in the country would have had uh, would have had two doses by the end of um, uh, of uh, so by July by July the nineteenth uh, we will have uh, all adults everybody over eighteen would have had a first dose. Uh, you, you're perfectly right, uh, Andrew, that uh, there will still be some time to run before. Um, uh, university students w- who get vaccinated in July will get their uh, will get their second dose, but uh, we will certainly look at what we can do to accelerate uh, second doses as, as we're doing now for uh, for people across the across the country. Uh, and you know, if there are outbreaks uh, in particular places, as we've done uh, surge vaccination and, and surge testing, we may uh, do that uh, in in those places as, as it may be necessary. But I mean, you know, what can you say, Mary? Well, it, I mean, the government must have thought about something. I mean, it must be north of a, of a million, mostly young people, on a kind of mass internal migration in the autumn. You know, surely this is a major risk on the on the pandemic risk register that has to be factored into this decision making around the the roadmap. Um, now, I'm an optimist, as you know, um, and my guess is that they're going to just bust a gut to accelerate the vaccination program to make sure that the start of term goes ahead fairly normally and without a surge in, in cases, which I think is their primary worry, obviously. Um, you know, they're not they're not trying to spare the blushes of the university sector here, but they're really trying to keep case numbers and hospitalizations down. But, uh, you know, in case any ministers are listening, uh, u- universities could use some pragmatic approaches here so that they can get back to educating young people rather than managing COVID restrictions and test and traces and upsetting local residents by unwittingly uh, increasing infection rates. Um, yeah, so who, who knows, Jim? I just, um, I put my faith in the acceleration of, of the vaccination programme. I mean, it really is fascinating because, you know, by common consent, the Republic of Ireland is at any point, you know, either three or four or five weeks behind, you know, the UK in terms of the progress of the pandemic and vaccination and all sorts of other things. But um, the universities minister this week managed to put a plan out for the reopening of campuses. Um, And it just doesn't feel like, certainly doesn't feel like we're there. But Mark, you know, one of the things I I was reading this week was the leak on Politico about um, the social distancing review that the cabinet office has been leading, which I think, you know, is interesting because it might have all sorts of implications, both for universities and colleges, but also workplaces and (laughs) private training providers and so 
on. You know, I was looking at it thinking, interesting, you know, border controls are likely to be tougher this September than they were last September. Uh, we might end up with ventilation standards indoors, which, you know, we obviously didn't have last year. And if I think about the average university campus, there are bits of campuses that probably wouldn't meet that standard and other bits that would. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of this is about a guessing game, isn't it? And scenario planning for, for in order to try, try and work out how to kind of hit the ground running whenever the, right. whenever the, it, it when, whenever we're needed and, and to. In a way, things like, things like Brexit and, and, and so on has got businesses used to the idea that they need to plan for contingencies and things which um, they didn't wish for, but but they have to put plans in place for real uncertainties. Don't even know if this thing is going to be necessary. How much should we spend on that? And and I think we've sort of got used to the idea. And it started out in 2016. People thought this is a blip. It, it's now life, right? Life's always going to be like this, I think, where it's just more uncertain. You have to make judgments and take and take risks really about whether you're going to invest in reopening. Are you going to put in this ventilation and change your air conditioning and, and, and all of that? The, the, the trick here, if, if there is a trick to this is don't try and predict every element of the future. That's a mugs game. It's impossible. I like trying to see around corners, but, but, but you can't, the answer is to think about what is the absolute, what, what are the choices facing your business, your institution? Um, and, and then think, what would it take? for me to change my mind and almost try and describe the scenario and then figure out, do I think that set of circumstances is more or less likely? You have to sort of turn it on your head and make lots more provisional decisions. Anyone planning a wedding for July has been living with a provisional decision. Their whole thing is if it goes ahead. In the same way as if you're planning a barbecue, if the weather's good or if the weather's not good, you have a backup plan. And I think Lots more things are going to be like that. Provisional decisions, not ones you can take, you know, with a guaranteed three-year return on your investment in the way we, we did back in the day. Mary, you're chairing the Student Futures Commission. The calculation on risk is slightly different for students, isn't it? And, you know, I seem to remember we had you on the podcast roughly this time last year where I think quite reasonably you were saying, look, there's probably not a lot else for students to do in September 2020. Whereas if there are still some risks about, you know, the level of face-to-face teaching that happen, you know, whether people will get locked down and so on, the risks aren't quite as, you know, the risks of a year off, a year out, aren't quite as strong are they you know international travel might be available there'll be certainly plenty of part-time work around if you listen to the hospitality industry i'm not i'm not sure whether i would risk it if i was a student and i could get a kind of guaranteed deferred place what do you think um yeah good good question um well i'm uh i I would still go for it because i think um i think uh that you know whatever whatever happens graduating in three years time will the world will look very different in in lots of different ways and i think if somebody's got a plan to go to university the best thing is is to go ahead with it um i think it's quite hard if you haven't always planned to defer a year i think it's quite hard to to find a meaningful way to to fill that year um and uh, although you know there, there there are lots of people recruiting like crazy in the hospitality industry you know does somebody really want to spend want to spend a year doing bar work and is is that good for their mental health and um you know their 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 kind of future optimism and so on so yeah i think it's a balanced decision um and you know different students will have different circumstances which help them make that decision but i'd I'd still be going for it 
So that's about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscription services. So thanks very much to Mark, Mary, Mike Ratcliffe, everyone at Team Wonky that makes the show happen. And until next week, stay wonky. Stay wonky.